View family, welcome home. The View is a place of real and imperfect people coming together to worship the real and perfect God. We believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and our mission is to make His name known in the city of Memphis. No matter what you've been through, no matter where you've come from, you belong here. Here at The View, we are training up believers to be bold enough to use their voice for the gospel. Since Christ died for the sins of the world, since He gave up His life for us, we're called to give up our lives for Him. In other words, it's not about me anymore. This semester, we're going to talk about love, a word that's thrown around so casually. But what does true, sacrificial love look like? How do we live in it, and how do we show it to others? We need to look to the one who sacrificed his life for us. This is real love. Hey, listen, we're going to jump into it. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is we're going to be. We were in this last week. If you're taking notes, I hope that you are. I hope that you have something to take notes with, because I definitely have notes that I want you to walk out of here with tonight. Psalm 51, we're continuing with our Real Love series by going verse by verse through Psalm 51. And here's the title. If you're taking notes, here's the title. We're going to talk through this concept tonight very slowly. The title of the message tonight, as we continue through Psalm 51, is this, God's View. Welcome to the view. We're talking about God's view. That was corny. Thank you, Jacob, for aiming it. God's view. I always thought that was cool, but it's fine. God's view. We're going to talk about God's view tonight. We're going to focus on Psalm 51, verses 3, 4, and 5. And then really, I mean, where we're really going to focus most of our energy tonight is on verse 6, which is an incredible verse. Now, what I want to talk to you about tonight is truth. I want to talk to you about truth. And I want to tell you what the Bible says about truth, and I want to tell you what, what we believe because of the Bible when it comes to truth. Now, we live in a culture, and you know this because we're all on TikTok, and we're all on social media, and we're all on these platforms. We are Generation Z, and we are millennials. We live in a culture that is very much all about, and this is not going to be new to you, it's all about you finding your truth. Have you heard that before? Has anybody in the room heard that before? Hey, listen, your goal in life is to find your truth. Jared, you'll hear people say things like, well, that might be true to you, Salsa, but that's just not true to me. And we're all on the search to figure out what truth really is. And what we've done is we've made truth subjective instead of truth being objective. We have taken something that's grounded and we've made it fluid in our search for purpose, in our search for truth. We now say that truth can be decided by any one of us depended upon what we feel. What I want to tell you tonight, and I hope that this doesn't push you the wrong way, but it is reality. Truth is not decided by feelings. Truth is decided by facts. Okay? Amen. Praise God. Amen. I think we're ready for tonight. Listen, you can amen. You can make some noise. We can have fun in church. Is that okay? Amen? Amen? Yeah, I know it's wellness break. Some of y'all like, man, why didn't I get a full spring break? <laughs> Should be doing a sermon on complaining tonight. <laughs> I've heard so many people, I don't even know what a wellness break is. <laughs> It's a two-day break. Some of y'all are hurt by it. I know. I'm so sorry. I'll move on. Truth. <laughs> Some of y'all, that hurt. Some of you are like, I don't like this guy very much. <laughs> Truth is not decided by feelings. It's decided by facts. Now, one of the uh, most famous uh, quotes that I love about truth, and I want you to write this down, is from Tony Evans. Truth is God's view on any subject. Truth is God's view on any subject. Now, if you're here and you're not a believer, you're not going to believe this is true. You're, you're, you're going to disagree with this because you may not believe the God of the Bible. And that's okay. I'm praying that you would change your mind when you see how good and real God is. But scripturally speaking, truth is God's view on any subject, which is so cool. If you want to know what truth is in regards to your situation, your circumstance, ask what is God's perspective on it. What, is God, what does God say about this situation that I'm in? Listen, we spend all the time in the world running to everybody else to figure out their view. We will hunt down 10 to 15 views of other people in our life before we go to God's word and find out what does he say? What is his view? Being all-knowing, being the Lord and supreme ruler of the universe, we should know what he has to say about our circumstances if they're our circumstances. We should know. 
So scripturally, as a believer who believes in Jesus Christ, truth is God's view on any subject. He's perfect. He created all things. He knows all things. Now, you and I can both go to the zoo together. The Memphis Zoo is fantastic. We all love going to the Memphis Zoo. Great place to take a date. You heard that first here. You want to take somebody out, take them to the Memphis Zoo. You're going to smell a variety of smells, which is good. It'll keep you, if your conversation's bad, it'll keep you distracted. I don't know where that came from. My goodness. I didn't write that down. You, we could go, both go to the zoo and look at a giraffe. We could be standing there, and it is a giraffe hunter. And someone will say, actually, to me, that's an elephant. You can say that, but just because you say it's an elephant doesn't change the truth that it's a giraffe. See, we've made truth something that then we shift around and change based on our perception. You could say that that giraffe is ugly. You could say that that giraffe is not your favorite. That'd be an opinion. But to say that the giraffe is an elephant when it's not because that's your truth is wrong. You say, Daniel, that's hilarious. That's silly. I know it is. That's what we've done with gender. And, you know, that's not the sermon for tonight, but I want to tell you. What we've done with gender is we have said that gender is not something that's grounded in truth. It can be changed. It's fluid. What, what we have said about racism, what we have said about hard issues that we face when it comes to life, when it comes to faith, when it comes to how we live, we have said that truth can be based on our feelings or our emotions or what we decide instead of basing our life on the Bible. I'm speaking to you in love scripturally, we go to all things, truth-wise, to the Bible. We go to the Word of God. It's not my truth on gender. It's not my opinion on gender. It's what God says. Why? Because God's perfect. God is all-knowing. God inspired the authors of this Bible to give them the words, inspired and prompted by the Holy Spirit to lead us in paths of righteousness so that we can know God. Isn't that fantastic? We have this. But what we've done is, in our generation, in our culture, we have said that truth is something that can be changed based on feelings and emotions or preference. And that's dangerous because when you get into that, there's a whole range of issues you run into when truth becomes subjective instead of truth being objective. When truth is based on feelings and not on facts, you run into a whole lot of issues, a whole lot of drama. And the reason why the church, and I don't want to get on the church tonight too much, but I will say this. The reason why the church has a hard time speaking truth into this world, here it is, believers, is because we have so many Christians living off of their truth instead of off of God's truth. That's why we have a hard time. That's why for hundreds of years slavery can go on because we're not living by God's truth. We're living by our own truth. That's dangerous. In all things, we must know God's view on the subject and on the matter. It's important. Now, one of my favorite movies that I've been watching is Avengers Infinity War. Anybody love Avengers? Love Marvel, Disney Plus, WandaVision, right? Yeah, somebody over here had a rough experience with it. Maybe it's a great one. She's like, ah! I love it too. I enjoy it. Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on blast. I, I love WandaVision. Well, here's my thing with Infinity War. The reason why I love Infinity War is because of Thanos, right? Thanos is a great villain. Thanos is a boss, and that's what Dakota's hoping to get to at some point. And Thanos... <laughs> I mean the Infinity Stones. He's trying to collect Infinity Stones. Y'all think weights automatically. Dumbbell curls. You can tell Thanos who did some dumbbell curls. I got to keep moving. One of, my favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite reasons why I love Infinity War is because of Thanos' argument. I mean, he really believes, think about this, Thanos really believes, what makes him so good as a villain is he really believes he's doing the right thing. I mean, he really believes that his truth is the truth and that the way to end human suffering is to wipe away 50% of humanity. And you watch the movie, everybody knows that it's a lie. He's living a lie. He's, he's not going in the path that he should go. It's obvious, but he has convinced himself that his truth is above all. And that's why he's a madman at the end of the day. Joker's the same way in the dark night. And I want to tell you something. There's a lot of people who are living as madmen, who are living insane, who are not living according to God's standards because they believe their truth is supreme. You and I are not supreme when it comes to God. God is supreme. He is the ruler and the Lord. That means he dictates truth, not us. All right? So that's what we believe, and we have to fight against Scripture. Now, 
we talk about truth, I want to give you these verses. Psalm 25, verse 5 is an incredible verse. I want you to write this down, moving very quickly. It says, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. We just did a training with our leaders that was fantastic. Jasmine did a training with some of our volunteers. She did a fantastic job training us on what it means to be patient. And right there, he says, for you, I will wait all day long. I want to tell you something. There's some people in your life who would not wait on you for anything. If you're late, they're leaving you. God has made himself available to you, and he is waiting for you to come to him and be with him and fall at his feet. And in the same way, God is good enough for you and me to wait and pray and see him move. He's good enough to wait for on his timing to do something. And some of you may be praying for someone in your life and you want to give up. I want to tell you something. Don't. Don't give up praying. I don't know what that is for you, but don't give up praying. Keep praying, whatever it is. Trust God and know that his timing is greater. Not only does the Old Testament talk about truth in various places, in John 14, verse 6, very famous verse, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God, I want to say this to you. This verse will stay up on the screen. I want you to really look at this. God operates in a realm of truth. God functions completely in truth which is a great thing. Praise God. God is all good, and he is righteous, and he is truth. But I want to tell you something. We also have an enemy. We have an enemy who is real and attacks and hates when you do godly things. We have an enemy, and he is known as the father of what? Thank you. The father of lies. Satan. Here's what's so incredible. Jesus is truth, and, and Satan is described as the father of lies. Literally, his very nature is that of a murderer. We have a real opponent. I want you to see this in John 8, verse 44. Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He's talking about Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. Can you imagine that? There's a lot of us who get ourselves into drama, and the reason why is because of that statement right there. We don't want nothing to do with truth. We would rather have a bunch of lies. We'd rather have our opinion and our preference than truth. If we would just start operating in a realm of truth and not a realm of lies, the answers to our problems would come so, so quickly. He has nothing to do with truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and is the father of lies. There's a battle going on every day in our life, and it's a battle of lies and truth. And tonight I want to talk to you about how we overcome spiritual warfare in our lives when Satan is attacking. I want you to write this down before we jump to Psalm 51, and it's this. When you choose to live in truth, you invite God into your trial. When you choose to live in truth, I see a lot of people writing stuff down. Thank you. Praise God. When you invite God, when you choose to live in truth, you invite God into your trial. But I want to tell you the other side of that coin. When you choose lies, you invite the devil into your trial. When you choose to live in truth, you invite God into your trial. When you choose lies, you invite the enemy into your trial. Now, David, starting in verse 3, last week he talked all about, have mercy on me, O God. We talked all about how the desperate will ask for mercy, the desperate will see Christ. And now he continues in his prayer of repentance after committing the sin of murder, adultery, manipulation, lies. After falling into all this sin, he continues praying for repentance. Look at verse 3 with me in Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. There's some people here tonight who feel like this. David says, I don't have to wonder about my transgressions. I know them. And he says, my sin is ever before me. In the same way that growing up, your parents would constantly put vegetables in front of you. And you would always have it before you on the table and you would dread it. David says that in the same way of a table, and a meal, it's this picture right here of a table that before him at all times is his sin. It's before him. It's laid out. 
And there's some people in here who feel like that. There's sexual immorality laid out before you every day. There's pride laid out before you. There's ego laid out before you. There's all these things you're shameful and guilty of that are just laying before you because you haven't brought them to the Lord. Maybe it's stuff in your past. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And then in verse 4, he says, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Unlike Jesus, David was born with a sinful nature like all of us. Because of the fall of man in the garden, he was born with a sinful nature. He understands his nature. He understands his issue. He understands his problem. He knows that his problem is sin. He knows that his problem is, watch this, himself. A lot of us as college students, if we're honest, and I can say this because I was a college student, actually technically still am, masters-wise, a lot of times our problem is that we don't realize we're the problem. A lot of times we get into issues because we don't realize we're the issue. It's our flesh, it's our drama, it's our pride that we need to die before. And then verse 6, I love this. In the ESV version, it says this, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom. God is a God who teaches wisdom in the secret heart. Let's pray for a moment, students. Heavenly Father, God, you are so good. And Lord, I believe that your goodness and your faithfulness and your mercy is going to be glorified tonight. God, I believe that you are here tonight with us. Where two or three are gathered, there you are in their presence. There's more than that, God, and we ask that your presence would be with us. God, I believe that you're already trying to save someone tonight. God, I believe, as I talked about a moment ago, about having religion but not relationship. God, I really do sense that there are people in here who have a whole lot of religion but have never started a relationship with Jesus. God, I pray that you would save those people right now. God, I pray for all of us that we would learn about you and your truth, that we would be humbled, that we would have our hearts open to you. God, please speak to us. I pray that if there's anything in my notes I don't need to say, take it away. And God, I pray that you would add things by the power of your spirit to my notes that are not in there now. God, we pray that you would speak. Thank you for bringing all these students out, God. Such an incredible group on their wellness break. God, we love you. If that's your prayer tonight, would you say amen? Amen. Number one, identify the lies and the attack. Now, here's the first thing I want you to get. What we need to do when it comes to truth and lies and spiritual warfare is we need to identify the lies and the attack. Identify. That means to, and you know what it means. Obviously, I don't have to clarify. But most of us don't take the time to simply identify What's happening in our lives? We don't stop. We don't ponder. We don't think. We don't pray. We have to start by identifying the lies and the attack that we have before us. Now, as David says, my sin is ever before me, he could not get away from the sin that he committed. When David committed adultery, when he had Uriah murdered, I want you to get this. There were months, watch this, there were months between his sin And this prayer of repentance, months, David has been trying to live, Zach, with this burden for months. This is something David has been carrying. He's tried to deny it. He's tried to bury it. He's tried to hide it. He's tried to shove it away. He's tried to put it in a closet for months, whatever those months look like for him. He has tried to live with this. And what he's telling you now is incredible insight from thousands of years ago. He's telling you that he can't live with it, that it's ever before him. No matter how many times he stores it away in the closet, it keeps on coming back out to his public life. No matter how many times he can convince other people he didn't do what he knows he did, he still has to live with the fact that he did what he did. And there's a lot of us in here tonight who believe if we can just deny it long enough, it will go away. That's not the case. Sin is like a leech. It will grab a hold of you. It won't let go until you give it to God. He's the only one that can remove that shame and that guilt. It will stay on you. It will stay on you. Sin is often like a sunburn. It will stay on you, and it will wear you like a glove. Sin and shame, and I know this is heavy, but it's real life. we got to talk about it. Sin will wear you like a sunburn. 
It'll hurt you, but at the same time, it's noticeable to other people around you. You know how a sunburn goes away? Start to peel. You start pulling off that dead skin. You start ripping away what was. That's the process of sanctification. When you've got that coat of sin, when you're carrying that shame and God comes in and starts peeling it away, it's like a sunburn being peeled away. And finally, you have relief. That dead skin, that weight, that shame, that guilt starts falling off of your body. You ever had a bad sunburn before? I have. It's nasty. Skin starts falling off from places you didn't know was falling off. You shake your shirt, skin coming out. You're like, oh. And then what's so amazing is you take a little bit of aloe. It's cool, calm, refreshing. You put it on that skin. It starts cooling that skin down. I want to tell you something. The Bible describes repentance as refreshing. Repentance is like aloe when you have a sunburn. It will literally refresh you. It will restore you. In, a couple, in two weeks, we're going to look at how David says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Literally, aloe, boom, takes that hot skin that you've been struggling with and makes it cool again. Repentance will take that shame and guilt that you've been struggling with, remove it, and replace it with joy. Replace it with peace. Replace it with purpose. And you're sitting out there tonight and you say, Daniel, I don't believe you. I know there's one person in this room right now who just had that thought, who said, Daniel, I don't believe you. I don't believe that repentance will really bring me refreshing. Why? Because you've tried it so many times. See, there's some of us who have said, Daniel, I've repented. I've done this. I've done that. I've said it so many times and nothing's changing. Let me tell you something. A lot of reasons why it doesn't work is because we're not really repenting. We're just confessing. I've been there so many times. You want to know why it's not working? It's because you're telling it. You're saying it, which is a great thing. You're acknowledging it. Repentance is more than that. I want to tell you something. Confession is telling God your sin. Repentance is giving God your sin. A lot of times, why you don't think repentance is working is because you're telling God all about your sin. He knows. He knows. You're not surprising him. What's not working, why the aloe has not hit your skin yet, why you are not refreshed because you haven't given God that sin. See, you confess it, you tell it, you say it, you throw it out there, you tell somebody else about it, but then as soon as you get alone, you go right back to that sin. You go right back to that temptation. I've never walked down these stairs before. That's weird coming out on this side. The reason why we believe repentance doesn't work is because we're just confessing it. We're not giving it. What's amazing is David is at a point now, he probably, we don't know, I'm assuming he probably confessed it over those months, but he had not truly repented and given it to God. When you take that sin, that shame, that guilt, and you say, I'm done, I'm giving it to God by the power of the Spirit, by the Word of God, I'm going to walk, I'm going to live, I'm going to turn, Carson, from that life, from that choice, I'm going to turn from that choice, that choice of jealousy and pride and comparison. I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to turn to God. He will restore you. He will refresh you. I got to keep going. Yeah. Stairs, can you have a breath? Not really. I'm doing pretty good. Shame and guilt. Good. David also says, and I want to make this point to you very quick, quickly, as we talk about identifying the attack and the lines. We have to identify it. You can't repent of something you haven't identified. You can't repent of something that you haven't marked and said, here it is. Here's the lie. Here's the attack. I want to tell you this too. David is taking responsibility. David says, my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, God, I have sinned. David is taking responsibility over his sin. Now, here's what's so cool. The king before David didn't do this. I don't know if you're familiar with King Saul, but he didn't take responsibility over his sin. Yeah, he ended up in a world of trouble. He ended up in a different place. Would you look with me at 1 Samuel 13 on the screen? In this moment for Saul, you don't have to know everything that's going on here. But what's going to happen here is that Saul is going to choose to take matters into his own hands instead of trusting God and trusting God's timing. Look at what it says. Saul said in this moment, when he's supposed to be waiting for the Lord, he says, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. I don't have time to go into all of this. We'll be here all night. But he offered the burnt offering when he wasn't supposed to do it. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, who he was waiting for. Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And then Samuel said, look at Samuel. He says, what have you done? In other words, you got outside of your jurisdiction. You took matters into your own hands when they belonged in God's hands. 
You didn't trust God's plan. You made it your plan. You didn't trust God's will. You made it your will. And that's where a lot of us live. Now watch his response. This is so fascinating. Please don't miss this. Look at what Saul does. Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me, that's the first thing he says. He says, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, so now, he said, I, the people were scattering from me and then you, Samuel, do not come within in the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me. I have not sought the favor of the Lord. I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Watch this. These verses teach us four things. Don't write them down yet. I'm going to tell you when to write it down. What Saul does after he sins is the first thing he does is he blames his own people. He blames his own people. The troops were deserting me. He blames his own people. The second thing is he blames Samuel. You didn't arrive on time. This is your fault. Then he blames his situation and the enemy. The Philistines were assembling. And lastly, when you study this text, the last one, Trey, that Saul blames is God himself. I didn't have the favor of God. You know what you can't find here in Saul's little rambling bunch of drama? Repentance. Nowhere in this can you find repentance. You find excuses, but you don't find repentance. Here's where I want you to write this down. A repentant heart doesn't blame their people. When you find yourself in a situation that's a hardship, a repentant heart doesn't blame their people. Not only that, but a repentant heart doesn't blame their leaders. He turns and he puts it on Samuel. He says that you didn't arrive in the point of time. A repentant heart doesn't blame their leaders. David in this moment is not blaming anybody. He's taking responsibility. He doesn't blame their leaders. And a repentant heart doesn't blame their situation. Doesn't even blame the enemy. James 1, we've talked about this, says each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Does Satan tempt us? Yes, but we're drawn away by our own evil desire. And then the last one, a repentant heart doesn't blame God himself. I want you to take these four things, and I want you to think about these this week. And I want you to watch yourself. And I mean this. Lock in with me for a moment. Not doing a bunch of stories tonight and all that. I want you to lock in with me. I want you to look at your life this week, and I want you to watch where you stumble. I want you to watch where you sin. I want you to watch where you fall short. And then watch how do you respond in that moment. How do you respond when you're in a tough situation, when you're being challenged, when you find yourself committing that sin again or that thought? How do you respond? Is it blame? Is it putting it on someone else? If, oh, if only so-and-so would do this or do that. How do you respond? Because there's a prideful way and there's a repentant way to respond to this. Now, I want to tell you something here before we move on to point two. The very first step to victory in spiritual warfare is identifying the subject itself. This is not on the screen, but I want you to write this down. Identify the area of your attack. And we're going to get real practical tonight. We're teaching tonight. We're going to walk through this. Identify the area of your attack. You want to overcome spiritual warfare, then write it down right now. Don't wait. What else are we here for? Tell another story, hoop and holler. No, literally, write it down right now. Write down the area that you're experiencing spiritual warfare in. Where is that attack coming from? Where are you sensing lies in your life? Because David has identified it. Is it friendships? Is it family? Is it your value? Identity? Purpose? Calling? Is it sexual temptation, the body? Is it pride, fear, worry? See, a lot of us talk about spiritual warfare, but we don't identify where we're actually experiencing spiritual warfare in. 
And I want to give you an example. A few, not too long ago, I was having spiritual warfare when it came to sleep. When it comes to sleep. I was having a lot of spiritual warfare when it comes to sleeping through the night. I was having nightmares, and I couldn't rest. It was very hard to rest. I don't know if you've ever had nightmares before, but I was having a lot of nightmares. And what I found myself doing during the day, and I'm just leveling with you here, is I found myself living with fear during the day. I found myself living with doubt. I saw myself living anxiously. But for a while, I didn't realize it was my sleep because I didn't take the time to trace it back to the root of my spiritual warfare. And some of you know what I'm talking about. I didn't trace it back to the root. And when you don't trace your attacks, when you don't trace your insecurities and your spiritual warfare back to the root, you will never be able to overcome it. What I realized is this. I realized that since I was having, watch this, since I was having a hard time trusting God throughout the night, that led to me having a hard time trusting God throughout the day. I realized after assessing my situation and praying that because I was trusting God to give me rest throughout the night, I was, trusting, I was having a hard time trusting God to give me providence throughout the day, to give me direction throughout the day. See, that which began in the night was then impacting the rest of my day. And if I doubted God's ability to get me through the night, I'm certainly going to try to find my own path during the day. But I never would have got there without prayer and without thinking and without slowing myself down. See, I identified the source. I identified the root. I identified the cause. Here's what's amazing. When you identify the cause, that will lead you to the cure. In your spiritual warfare, when you identify the cause, God will lead you to the cure. What I realized is that because of my fear during the day was stemming from a lack of trust when it came to sleep, I ran to God's word. I ran to truth. And what I found was incredible. In fact, Brother Steve, our pastor, our senior pastor, sent me this scripture when I was in the middle of my spiritual attack. He sent me this scripture from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 24 to 26. It says, if you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. See, identify the cause, and God's word will point you to the cure. There's a lot of college students in here, if we can be real, that struggle with singleness. <laughs> I know everybody here, oh, not me. I love being single. I don't want a relationship. I don't want a ring by spring. I'm good, Daniel. None of us actually struggle with singleness, but if we're honest, a lot of us do. And I want to tell you something. Singleness is not the issue. Singleness is the surface of that. See, the reason why a lot of college students, I'm going to get real with you, the reason why a lot of college students struggle with singleness is not because they just need a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It's because they struggle when it comes to isolation and loneliness. See, the root is not singleness. You will not overcome your spiritual warfare with singleness by finding a boyfriend or a girlfriend. In fact, it will be amplified. You say, Daniel, that's the biggest crap I've ever heard in my life. If I got a boyfriend or a girlfriend, singleness is cured just like that. Uh-uh. Not true. <laughs> Better watch out. Be careful what you wish for. Watch this. Your issue with singleness is not because you don't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It's because there is a lack of real intimacy with Jesus Christ. And when you lack that intimacy with Jesus Christ, you're going to lack trust with Jesus Christ. And so when you don't go to the cause, when you continue to try to cure singleness, sorry, I didn't get so close you guys. When you try to cure singleness by finding a quick boyfriend or a quick girlfriend, you will only make the problem worse. You are treating the effect of your spiritual warfare. You are not treating the cause. What you have done is you have said, I'm going to pursue my truth. My truth, your truth says this. I'll conquer loneliness as soon as I get a boyfriend or a girlfriend. God's word does not say that. You and I say that. College campuses say that. TikTok says that. That's not true. And if you're in a relationship, your boyfriend or your girlfriend does not need to be your main source of intimacy. Hello. I stepped on some toes right there, and I'm not just talking about yours. <laughs> stepped on some toes right there. Some of you are closer to your boyfriend or your girlfriend than you are the Lord. That's an issue. Haven't thought about that all week. That's for somebody. You overcome this dread of singleness. When you realize that the cause is a lack of intimacy with Jesus Christ. Now, when you go to Jesus and you realize, watch this, you want to talk about God's truth? Here's what it says. It says that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. 
David says in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. That's present and personal. Is my. The Lord is my. The Lord is meaning present and my meaning personal, which means God is present to you and God is personal to you. The question is not how available is God to you. The question is how available are you making yourself to God? That's the question. So when you realize that, you realize all the intimacy and all the love and all the affirmation and all the encouragement that you could ever need is found in your good shepherd. That means when you go to your boyfriend or your girlfriend, they will eventually let you down. Believe it or not, they will fail you. Your wife or your husband one day will fail you. But every time you run to God's word, every time you run to truth, because he is perfect, he will never fail you. You will never go to God looking for intimacy and him not be the one to come through with it. It's us who will be the ones to not come through with it. That's truth. You want to overcome, and i got to move on. You want to overcome this dread of singleness. It's not found in a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Your spiritual warfare in this situation, the cause is intimacy with Jesus Christ. Sitting at his feet. Identify the lie. Not only do we do that, though. Number two, we identify God's truth and act. So number one is we have to identify the lie and the attack. Where is Satan lying to you? Is it about your sleep? Is it about singleness? Is it about your value? Once you identify, God bless you, once you identify the lie and the attack, your next step, identify God's truth and act. You don't have to do it in this way. You want to memorize God's word. Let this be step one. Identify God's truth and act. David says, behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom and the secret heart teaches wisdom. Now, I want you to understand this. The definition of wisdom is this. It'll actually be on the screen. Wisdom is based on your actions or decisions in regard to your experience and knowledge. You want to know what wisdom is? It's right here. You can write this definition now. Wisdom is based on your actions or decisions in regard to your experience and your knowledge. In other words, I'll give you the Daniel translation. Knowledge is what you know. Wisdom is what you do with what you know. That's the Daniel translation. Knowledge is what you know. Wisdom is what you do with what you know. My dad has a 1986 IROC Camaro. I love it. I think it's bad to the bone. It's got a little uh, candy apple stripe up the front of it. It's a beautiful, beautiful car. I love it. He would pick me up from school in it in the fifth grade, and I used to feel so cool hopping up in my dad's Camaro with him, and he, we would speed off, and I'd be like, yeah, dad, there's my crush. Ha-ha. <laughs> he'd start honking. I'd be like, don't do that. <laughs> and uh, I would love it. I love getting picked up in a Camaro. But First time he got the car, he didn't have an engine. He bought the car because he knew he could build an engine for it. That's how good my dad is as a mechanic. He knew he could build an engine for it. And so he had it with no engine at first, so it'd be in the backyard. It would look so good, I'd want to drive it, but I couldn't. And he started building this engine up, built it from the ground up, started getting all the parts for it, and it was incredible because now whew, that thing will fly, fly. But before it had an engine, all it did was sit in the driveway. Before it had an engine, it looked real good, but it didn't serve its purpose because it never went anywhere. You want to know what knowledge without wisdom is like? Watch this. Knowledge without wisdom is like a Camaro with no engine. You can look real good sitting in the driveway. You'll look real good having all this in your head, but you've missed your purpose because you're not going anywhere. You're idle. You're stuck in one place. When you start putting legs to this knowledge that you've been blessed with, some of y'all have majors I couldn't fathom studying. <laughs> Nursing and chemical engineering, mechanical engineering, law. Couldn't imagine studying law. I never, oh, goodness gracious. My major was physical education. For some of you, you have so much. Why'd you laugh? <laughs> Bro, that was too quick. I didn't even finish saying it. She's like, ah, oh, should have known. <laughs> I could tell it was a PE guy. <laughs> Saw him in sweats last week. <laughs> Some of you guys have so much knowledge about incredible things. Some of you have so much knowledge about God's word. The reason you don't have wisdom is because you don't put it in action. You have this, but it's sitting in the driveway. You could tell somebody how to share the gospel all day long, but we have a hard time actually going and sharing the gospel with people. We're a Camaro with no engine. We look good doing the three circles. We're just not actually out in the world driving around doing it. <laughs> Take your knowledge and use it. Now, I got to keep going. When spiritual warfare arrives, actually doing pretty good on time tonight. When spiritual warfare arrives, 
I want you to turn in your Bibles with me. Jesus is always the hero. King David is great, but Jesus is always the hero of any text and any sermon. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4 very briefly. I promise I won't be on this very long. But turn with me to Luke chapter 4, and I want to make a, a couple points to you in regards to the root, the cause of spiritual warfare. And this is vital for you to get. I'm praying that you walk out of here this week applying this and learning from this. I want to tell you this. While you're turning your Bibles, please listen to me. When spiritual warfare comes, you got to start fighting with truth. Cole just said it a minute ago. We ain't called to be bench warmers. We're called to be in the game. A lot of us lose to spiritual warfare because we're only playing defense. We're not playing any offense. You need God's word and God's truth inside of your mind so that you can play offense. It's time to start playing offense. I read a quote this morning that said the church is so happy to respond to movements of hell in this world, but it won't make initiative for heaven in this world. And that's a large statement, but here's the sum of it. A lot of times we are fine with just seeing Satan on the move and then responding to it instead of taking the authority that we have from heaven and initiating movements of God. You want to ask my team what we've been talking about lately. They'll tell you very clearly what it is. They won't even stutter. What I've been talking to my team about over and over and over again to the point that they're sick of it is taking initiative with the authority that God has given us from heaven. I'm getting off on a tangent. Authority from heaven is something that believers have been given. We have been given authority from heaven to take initiative and access the power that resides in heaven while we're here on this earth. Ask him about it because that's all we're talking about. We're all waiting for a movement of God. God's given us the power to go and be the movement. We're waiting on a revival. He says, I want you to be the revival. I want you to be the voice in the wilderness crying out saying, this is the Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is who you need to know. If you are a believer, you have been given authority. That means you can take initiative when it comes to ministry. That means you don't have to just wait for someone to tell you what to do to make an impact for the kingdom. That means you just get out there and you do it. You find gaps and you fill them. The best basketball players I ever coached are ones who found a need on the team and met it without having to be told. A lot of us, including myself, I'm the guiltiest. We'll do the right thing. As long as we've been told to do it, God's given you authority. Now, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is tempted, don't miss this. This is so cool. When he's tempted, there's three core temptations. And there's also three lies associated with all these. And what I'm about to do is, based on Luke 4, I'm going to give you three. This is under the umbrella of identifying God's truth. I'm going to give you three root causes that Satan tries to go after when it comes to spiritual warfare. I'm going to tell you the three areas that he most commonly attacks when he's coming after you. If you missed this, you missed what God had for you tonight. This is important. You need this. Look with me at Luke 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Some of us like, I relate. Some of us can't wait to get a cookout. Don't you say yep. You ain't said yep for one of these single verses. You want to say yep for cookout. I've been giving verses all day long. He hears cookout. Yep. Amen. Pastor. I'm going to get you for that later, Saucer. The devil said to him, watch this, underline this, here it is. If you are the son of God, you think Jesus got to prove himself to the devil? Well, how trifling you got to be. You know how many times we subconsciously want to make Jesus prove himself to us? The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. These will not be on the screen, but I want you to write this down identity. The very first place, these are three places the devil targets. The first one is identity. You want to know where he's attacking you? It's largely your identity. He says, hey, if you are the son of God, prove it. He's saying, if you are the son of God, why should you go hungry? Man, if you are the son of God that we've all been waiting for, why should you be out here suffering? And you know what? When Christians go through trials, when we suffer, Satan's going to say the same thing to you. Hey, why should you be suffering? He's going to say, don't you know who you are? Don't you know you're above being hungry? Don't you know you're above going through trials? Why should you suffer? 
He's going to say that to you. That's a lie of Satan. That's a lie. He's going to come after your identity. And not only that, Jesus is hungry. He's attacking Jesus externally. He's coming at Jesus because of an external weakness. Is it possible that Satan is using an external weakness of yours with the plan to really attack you internally? You tell me. He's attacking Jesus on the outside. Really, his attack is on the inside. I want to tell you something. Satan will attack your image when really he's attacking your identity. If he can get you to doubt how God has formed you on the outside, you better believe he can get you to doubt how he has formed you on the inside. If he can get you to hate your face, he can get you to hate your personality. If he can get you to hate your cheeks and hate your body and hate this big old head that God gave me, if he can get you to hate it, he can start to get you to hate who he's created you to be, your skills, your talents, your abilities. He will come after your identity if you are the son of God. If you are a child of God, if you really are this, then do this. He's going to try to get you to feed yourself instead of going to God. The very first one, students, is identity. And I'm going to pause for a moment and just let you think. There's no reason to go 100 miles an hour tonight. What lie could Satan be talking to you about when it comes to your identity? Because what God's word says is that you are made in the image of Jesus Christ and that if you are a believer, if you have repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in him and confessed him as Lord, you are a child of God. You belong to heaven, not this world. You belong to the Lord. You belong to Jesus Christ. That's your identity. Your identity is not in this world. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's identity was not shook. And if your identity is in him, your identity will not be shook. When you place your identity in this world, though, oh, you'll be shook. You will be shaken. I'm going to give you 30 more seconds. What lie about your identity? What lie about who you are? Let's keep going. I like this. I like the calm. I love hooping and hollering as many other people, but I love the calm. You can't find this places in America. You can't find this in churches anymore. Stillness with a group this big is really incredible. Because right now the Spirit of God, if you're a believer, is telling you in your heart where that attack is on your identity. He's telling you so that you can act. This point is identify God's truth and act. Look with me at the next verse, verse 5. The devil then took him up and showed him all the kingdoms in the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, so trifling, to you I will give all this authority and their glory as if Jesus needed any authority from Satan, as if he really needed Satan to do anything for him or give him any authority. It's laughable. It's despicable. It's lies. He said, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will, if you then will worship me. He challenges Jesus to worship him. You really think Satan isn't going to challenge you to worship him? He's a loser. He is a loser, and he's standing on the losing side, <laughs> and he's never going to be worth worshiping. Jesus Christ is always worth your worship, always. And he challenges Jesus to worship him. If you're a believer, this should make you sick to your core, seeing him tempt Jesus like this. And look at what Jesus says. Jesus answered, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Not only is one of the biggest places of attack identity, but it's also, write this down, authority. I'm going to go really quick because I just spent a whole couple of minutes talking about authority. He's going to come after your authority. He is going to challenge what God has called you to do. And your mission and your plan from God. He's going to challenge your authority and he's going to lie to you and tell you, you don't have the authority God says you do. We lose on this earth because we don't walk in the victory that we have from heaven. Matthew 28, I read it this morning. He says, all authority on earth and in heaven has been given to me. Jesus does not need authority from anybody else. He has been given all authority from the Father. And then the last one, look with me, moving really quickly here, verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem 
and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, now Satan's quoting scripture. We all know this chapter. He's quoting scripture out of context. He's quoting it falsely. He says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed. The last one, not only identity and authority, but protection. Protection. The devil wants Jesus to force God to protect him instead of trusting that he will on his way to the cross. The enemy wants to force you out of God's will. He wants to force you out of God's protection and convince you that you can protect yourself. He wants to force you out of his plan and put you into your plan. The devil is so crafty. Now, I'm going to sum those all up with this right here. Spiritual warfare is targeted at this. Who you are in Christ, what you've been called to do by Christ, and then how you're protected by Christ. I'm going to say it one more time because I really, that's just a summary of what we all just went through. You want to talk about identity, authority, and protection. What he's coming after is who you are in Christ, what you've been called to do by Christ, and how you are protected by Christ. A lot of us go through spiritual warfare with our thoughts. I heard something that changed my life. I do it now every day. I want you to do this when he comes after your identity, your authority, and your protection. What I started doing is fiery darts. Fiery darts. How the devil comes at you is fiery darts. And I believe a lot of those are thoughts in our mind. Here's what I started doing. It's a real physical thing. You can do it. You may look crazy, but you can do it. What I do when I have Satan firing those darts in my mind is I literally do this. I grab the arrow, I put out the fire, and I throw it away. I grab the arrow, I put out the fire, and I throw it away. I've never forgotten that. My entire life, I've never forgotten that. Well, I only heard it about a month ago. But over the last month, I've never forgotten that. I said my entire life real quick. Like, goodness, I learned that a month ago. I better chill. Listen, hear me. I know it's goofy, but seriously, next time he throws a thought in your mind about identity, or authority, or protection, grab the arrow, put out the fire, throw it away. Fight it with truth, and God will free you. David knows that his sin is before him, and he's broken, and he doesn't want to live in lies anymore. He wants to live in truth. 